0: Greetings, fellow captains, and welcome back to Rank Amateur. Today on Rank Amateur, we're going to have part one of a two-part episode on the HMAS Perth, which is the Australian, or Commonwealth, or whatever you want to call it, uh, tier six light cruiser. And arguably, in my opinion... The best tier six that's just my opinion anyways um we will be going over its history in this episode and in in the next episode we'll be going over its world of warships gameplay so without further ado let's get right into it But first, as per usual, we'll go over the World of Warships news recently. And there's been, like, a ton of World of Warships news since I uh, last published my, um, uh, well, last published my podcast. And uh, that's because i kind of been taking a break from World of Warships. Honestly, I've just had so much of a, I guess, I don't know. The World Warships has kind of been bothering me, just the way things are going, super ships, submarines, all this all this change and everything, and I don't really like it, and it's kind of getting annoying, and uh, not to mention the fact that I spent a long time grinding for the Deceven Provincia, and now I was kind of put off, I just, you know, every night grinding for that, and there's other things I want to do in my life, and my life is getting really busy right now, um, so yeah, I've just, I've, and, and I've rediscovered Sea of Thieves, and just... Sea of Thieves is a lot, just currently a lot more fun than World of Warships. I feel like World of Warships has always been a, a lot of fun for me, and I still love it, but it's just not not the game that I'm playing right now. I'm really sticking with the Sea of Thieves, it's just kind of like the swashbuckling sort of spirit that the game has that sort of World of Warships kind of used to have, and it's kind of just in recent months just been gone. So I'll get back into it. I had a hiatus a little while ago. Around like 2017, where I didn't play for a little while, and I'll come back to it. Well, The Warships not a bad game. It's just you know I'm kind of getting tired of it, um, so I'll be back sometime. But we'll just kind of gloss over the news. I don't have any personal experience lately since I haven't played since like mid October, <laughs> so um, yeah, we'll uh, we'll just gloss over it. So I do remember the last thing that was in the news when I published was the Rochester in the Premium Shop. So. There's uh, now new changes to the Soviet and um, uh, what is it? The Soviet and the German tech tree. So the Prussia is gonna replace the Grosser Kurfürst, and the um, Delaney is going to replace the Kabarosk, I think. Um, yeah, it, yeah, we'll replace the Kabarosk. So those Kabarosk and the Grosser Kurfürst will become uh, special ships. You can get coal. Submarines so in random battles. um, Next thing is Brandenburg. That's the tier 8 German battle cruiser, I think. Yes, it's tier eight. So it's just a better Odin, I, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. It, it's kind of like Tirpitz. It's just a better Odin. Really, that's what it seems like. But, um,. Does it have 283s or 305s? I think it was 283. No, 305. So yes, yeah, literally just a better Odin. Um, and then I just got the Halloween event that was a while ago. The Kearsarge is now in the premium shop. Don't know anything about the ship, really. Um, I've I've seen it. I've seen some reviews of it, but I have not seen it in battle. I haven't been in battle. Um, and then there's a new graphics update that I will say goes it looks pretty amazing, um, just, yeah, it's pretty spectacular, I mean, yeah, if we had a, earlier this year, I believe we had, was it this year or last year, we had a, a bit of a graphics update, and yeah, it was this year, it was 10.0, I think, and it looks pretty awesome, and they just taken this to a whole new level, the wake looks just amazing, it's, it's almost to see if these level of graphics, I would say, for the water, um, then uh, now you've got the Carl von Schalberg. Um, yeah, it's just another 150mm gun German destroyer with the really slow torpedoes. and Yeah, it's just a, it's a premium German destroyer that's a lot like, um, the new tech tree German destroyers. The, the small light cruisers without citadels. Yeah, those things. Yeah, that's what it's a lot like. Um... Now you got Soviet aircraft carriers. You have the Gibraltar and the Tulsa, which are now in the armory. Uh, the Tulsa is basically a Des Moines Tier 9 with three less guns, and I believe it also has does it, Yeah, it has a uh, repair parties, surveillance radar, and hydroacoustic search or defensive AA fire. And the Gibraltar is a Goliath that can fire only armor piercing. And has a flat um, ballistic trajectory. I believe, if I remember correct. No, the Marlboro is the one that had the, like, the 1.2 Sigma or whatever. No, this thing this thing is basically just a Gibraltar. Or a <laughs> It is the Gibraltar, but it's basically a Goliath that can only fire Arbor Piercing. And it's just got a chonky amount of HP. It, it's a big ship, and it has a super heal, I do believe. Oh, and has smoke, too. So, yeah, it's a research bureau ship, though. Um, you can't obtain it for coal. Uh, is the Tulsa research ship? Uh, oh no, Tulsa's just premium. Never mind. Um, and then you got the new super ships. Eh, I I don't I don't like that. I really don't. I don't like these super ships. I guess I don't I don't know if they're good or not. But it just I don't like having a weird tier eleven playing a tier ten. And these ships just being grossly overpowered. And I guess I don't know exactly what they're like now. Like I said, I haven't really played them. But when I saw them in testing, it was less than balanced. Let's just say the Cond or whatever the the Cond or the or Cond whatever the the French thing. It has two hundred forty millimeter guns, and you could get them. It has two hundred forty millimeters machine guns. So if you thought the um, the Henri IV was bad. Um this is an Henri IV that took steroids and spent too long staring in the mirror. So yeah, that's that. And I think that's pretty much news. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, new clan battle season. Up oh, there's new uh in update ten point ten you got arms race and stuff. Um like super ships. What else was in 10.10 that's notable that you probably already know about, but we'll just go over again? Up, oh, German battleships still in uh, early access. New visual improvements, new clan battles, new submarine tweaks, which are kind of okay, but don't really change all that much. Um, they did nerf, they buffed the ZAO, they nerfed the FDR, but they're going to buff it again, I think is what they said. They nerfed the Stalingrad, they nerfed the Petropavlovsk, they buffed the Katowoski, they buffed the Buffalo, they nerfed the Synop, they buffed the Z44, uh, reduced its detectability range to 7.5 kilometers, they buffed the Yu Yang, reduced its uh, torp reload time, they buffed the Marco Polo, bumped it up to 1.9 Sigma from 1.8, uh, buffed the Monarch, uh, it's ranged by about half a kilometer, they buffed all secondaries at tier 2 cruisers. They buffed, uh, or they nerfed the Chikuma's uh, secondary, secondary battery firing range, excuse me. And they nerfed a lot of tier 5 secondary battery firing ranges. Um, they also made minor changes to the secondary battery firing range of Dallas, or Devonshire, and Ismo. Uh, and by the way, uh, they increased the HP of the Zao, they nerfed the HP of the um, FDR, and they reduced it. For the Dive Bomber HP pool, from 3,700 to 3,500. So that's a huge nerf right there. It's still grossly overpowered. Wargaming would like or would like you to thank them for doing nothing. Um, Stalingrad had its main battery reload time increased from 20 to 21 seconds. Honestly, with the new uh, meta that the game's going, I don't feel the Stalingrad was that overpowered. Um... Uh, Especially with submarines and these new German DDs running around, Uh, I don't really feel like it was that overpowered, but, you know, an extra one second I feel might have been deserved, because it can slap you from across the map with 305mm armor piercing, which has, I think, one uh, among the highest penetration rounds in the game, even though they're not, like, the biggest rounds in the game, which kind of is, um, peculiar. In fact, do you mean Korea? The Soviet armor-piercing, obvious best armor-piercing, we have designed it, we have built it, totally did not steal it from Americans, and it is best armor-piercing, best penetration ever. Of course. And then the Petropavilosk needed a nerf. It Yes, it needed that nerf to be 14 seconds, because with a reload mod and an adrenaline rush, you can get it down to like an 8-second reload on those. 220-millimeter guns that can sit at Kerfursts from close range occasionally. Actually, uh, pretty regularly. Kodavoy-ski, um, Tier 5 Cruiser, it's garbage. Doesn't really matter what they did to it. Buffalo needed that buff. I feel like it could have used um a, down to a 10 second reload because the buffalo is such a garbage ship um because it, it it has a 12 second reload down or up from the 10 second reload on the uh baltimore and only gets three <laughs> guns as compensation on that and not to mention that the shell performance on pretty on everything except for the armor piercing and even then it's a bit mediocre is kind of trash so in And not to mention the range is the worst at tier 9. The health pool and maneuver... Well, not the health pool, but the health pool is not adequate for the maneuverability of the ship. It takes pens from every angle. It's just... It's like German armor on a slow reloading thing, or on a slow reloading platform with high shell arcs. It's just... It's not good. (laughs) I don't know why they thought that that ship would replace the Baltimore Tier 9. It, the Baltimore is just now really overpowered Tier 8, which I'm fine with because it's just about the only overpowered um, ship in the American lineup besides maybe the Des Moines. Even then, the Des Moines is pretty balanced. Um, so, you know, I feel I feel like it could have gotten more of a buff than that. I. I feel like a 10-second reload is necessary on the Buffalo to make it competitive. But I guess you'd be the judge of that. That wraps up uh, World of Warships news for today, though, I'm pretty sure. Let me just look through. Yes, that is it for um, World of Warships news. And now we will be going directly into the history of HMAS Perth. So HMAS Perth was a Leander-class cruiser that served in the Royal Australian Navy from the years of 1939 to 1942. And it was HMS Amphion, and I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's some Greek thing, you know, the British naming their ships after Greek figures is kind of like a thing. So um, she was laid down on uh, the 26th of June, 1933, launched on the 27th of July, 1934, commissioned on the 15th of June, 1936. Um, and she had the pennant number I-29. She was sold to the Royal Australian Navy in June 1939, just before the outbreak of World War II. She was christened HMAS Perth after the city of Perth, Western Australia, Um, and she was uh, commissioned on the 29th of June 1939 with the pennant number D-29. And she was of the modified Leander-class cruiser design. She was built after the initial um, five... Uh, Leander-like uh, class-like cruisers and did look significantly different from them. The uh, differences were obvious in their silhouette. The improved Leander-class had two funnels versus the um, original Leander-class had kind of like a truncated one large funnel design. It was very strange. Uh, um, I believe it had something to do with the Washington Naval Treaty. Um, but anyways, the Perth had a displacement of 7,040 long ton standard. Uh, she had a length of 542 feet 4 inches or 171.4 meters uh, overall and then um, uh, a length between perpendiculars of 530 feet uh, which is 161 meters point or 161.5 meters Uh, she had a beam of 56 feet 8 inches so it's pretty narrow for a ship uh, or for a warship of her size Uh, and that was 17.3 meters she had a draft of 19 feet 5 inches or 5.9 meters uh, she had an installed power of, uh, which consisted of four Admiralty three drum boilers. Uh, they produced seventy-two thousand shaft horsepower. Uh, propelled four shafts uh, and four uh, geared steam turbines uh, for a top speed of thirty-two and a half knots, which is around thirty-seven point four miles an hour or sixty point two kilometers per hour. She had a range of seven thousand nautical miles at sixteen knots, which is a bit. On the small on the short side for uh, cruisers of her time, but she was a, a early interwar design, so it's kind of to be expected. Uh, she had a complement of 622, which consisted of 36 officers and 586 ratings, or I think that's yeah, that's the uh, Royal Australian equivalent of an enlisted person or man. Um, she had. For armaments, she carried four twin BL 6-inch or 152-millimeter guns. These were the guns that were carried by the Royal, pretty much all Royal navy light cruisers, all the way down to, like, the Southampton class and things. It was pretty universal. It's just kind of the turret that they were carried on. Uh, she carried four single QF 4-inch 102-millimeter guns and three quadruple uh, half-inch or 12.7-millimeter AA guns. Um, and she also carried... Uh, two quadruple 21-inch or 533 millimeters, uh basically just British standard torpedoes. Uh, this was, well, pretty standard for uh, all British uh, cruisers to carry about one launcher on either side. Uh, they were occasionally used, although they were not used all that much as their range was uh, less than most counterparts at that time, so less than the Japanese. And although they really didn't engage with the Germans, they were pretty equally... Um, as far as I know, pretty equally matched in terms of torpedo capabilities, but that is not the enemy that uh, the HMAS Perth would spend most of her time fighting, so she was pretty much outgunned in every aspect um, by the time that World War II came around. Uh, except for, you know, maneuverability, possibly, and detectability, because this is a very low ship in the water. It uh, has very low silhouettes, so it's a bit harder to detect than some other, let's say, Japanese-like cruisers that have uh, basically aircraft control towers as their superstructures. So they're enormous. It can be seen from a very uh, long distance away. Anyways, um, the... Leander-class light cruisers were basically just replacements for cruisers that had been uh, built uh, just after World or just during in the late parts of World War One or after World War One as part of the uh, late wars emergency program, and uh, they these cruisers that had been built in World War One were used until the late 1920s when it was determined that they're probably going to be obsolete. So a new class of light cruisers was drawn up, and um, the British uh, designers had to contend with the Washington Naval Treaties that were likely to be upcoming, so uh, they were preemptively designing the uh, Leander-class cruisers for these Washington Naval Treaties, um, which would favor the British because uh, the British were starting to fall behind on ship design. Obviously, they had a lot of older ships from World War I, and they were needing to replace those older ships but they hadn't been designing new ships in the meantime, so they were falling behind on these design principles. So it was hoped that by just reducing the sophistication of warships uh, in this interwar period, they might be able to stunt the growth of the Imperial Japanese Navy and um, the would-be German Navy after the rise of the Nazi Party and the rearmament of the German military. So initially, uh, these... Uh, new cruisers would have about a thirty one and a half knot speed uh six thousand nautical miles endurance and a displacement at around seven thousand tons. Um, they had to have a room to carry two aircraft and they had to be useful for both uh fleet and trade protection duties and uh, so there was some pretty stiff demands. Uh, they had to be seven thousand tons, which is pretty small for a light cruiser. Uh, especially by, like, 1930s standards the like, cruisers, well, cruisers in general are just getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and that's why they had the Washington Naval Tree to try and uh, keep cruiser sizes down across all nations, that failed miserably, mostly because lots of nations just ignored it, but um, that's kind of a conversation for another day. So, these uh, cruisers' designs turned out to be, uh, you're having the 8 uh, 152 millimeter standard British guns, the uh, BL 6 inches. Or six-inch guns, two uh, or four, tur- four guns, two turrets in the fore, and four guns, two turrets in the aft. And it was determined that the two torpedo tubes should be waist-mounted. And because of the demands and weight distribution, it was determined that the best way to distribute the boilers and the shafts and the turbines was to keep them all in the same places. And What I mean by that is you have one compartment across the whole ship that houses all the boilers and then one compartment that houses all the turbines and then the shafts go to the uh, props and, you know, that way you can have less funnels and it's easier to manage the exhaust and things like that. I think that some of you who are maybe more experienced in uh, military design or just redundancy in general can already see a huge problem with keeping all your uh, boilers and things in one area is that a single torpedo strike can take out all your power. The reason why that's bad is this is not the days where you're rotating guns with cranks and things like that. It's all power assisted. So, like, yes, you will, there are some designs where guns will be rotating with cranks, but that crank is often operating some sort of hydraulic valve or pump or something like that that's assisting you in moving this massive gun. And when the power goes out, that becomes difficult, if not nigh impossible, to train your guns on a target and reduces your combat effectiveness to nothing. And this was demonstrated in the Battle of Savo Island uh, in 1942 when uh, three US cruisers were taken out by like single hits. Uh, Just completely immobilized and it was also demonstrated uh, when USS Indianapolis was hit by a Japanese submarine torpedo and completely Immobilized with one torpedo hit Uh, I believe it did receive two torpedo hits, but there was one that like just immobilized it the other one uh, Caused flooding but not much more than that Uh, So this problem was foreseen by a few different designers, but the design went through anyways and later, when the improved Leander class came along, and there was, uh, after basic basically Leander design had been tested, it was realized that, hey, maybe that would be a good idea to separate the boiler spaces, or do what's called, like, alternating. So essentially what you have is uh, you divide the ship down the middle or longitudinally, then you're gonna, uh, have one boiler space on one side in a compartment, and then a accompanying shaft, uh, compartment, or a... A uh, turbine compartment and then uh, further uh, aft in the ship you can have another boiler compartment and another shaft compartment with that um, uh, with the turbine in it and essentially what that's supposed to do is if one one compartment is hit and flooded by a torpedo the other compartment is still operational so would it take at least two torpedo hits to immobilize the ship and while the ship would still operate at reduced capacity it would be able to be covered and limp away rather than having to be towed away or just scuttled Um, so it could be repaired or make its escape and it would be more efficient when operating alone in addition to this new arrangement it was found that you could increase the speed of the ship by about uh, a knot so you had about 32 and a half knot top speed with this new arrangement and this new arrangement made uh, working the ducks harder so british uh, designers realized they wouldn't have the ability to make a single funnel design so they split the funnels up into two funnels and that's why we get uh, the same class except two different um, uh, like two different funnel arrangements and there's also some other differences like uh, fire control directors and things and different um, AA gun layouts and stuff. Various uh, small nuances in the design. Also, there was uh, larger coal bunkers because uh, some of the, I believe some of the space for ducting was opened up, or uh, not coal bunkers, but fuel bunkers. Was o- Some of the space that was used for ducting to route the exhaust was opened up to fuel storage, so they were able to get an extra thousand nautical miles, which is a huge deal when you're having something that's going to be operating at various trade posts of the still-growing British Empire at this point in history. will I mean, not still growing, but still very large British Empire. So um, now that we kind of have the basic design and construction of the uh, Leander Class Down, and specifically HMAS Perth, um, we can go back on to her career oh one other issue with creating the two funnel design was it kind of cramped aircraft arrangements and what i mean by that is it was harder to accommodate um, the seaplanes especially the Supermarine walruses that were going to be carried by these ships with the two funnels in the way so uh, it, if you look at HMAS Perth in port, you can see there's kind of an awkward like arrangement of the aircraft crane. It has to be like folded to the side, and then you can rotate the catapult and shoot the walrus off, and then the, the, the um, catapult rotates back, and then the crane can swing out again to pick up the walrus and put it back on the um, catapult. It's a bit of an awkward arrangement, but they made it work. Um, so essentially, this uh, HMS Amphion, as she'll be known now, the later the HMAS Perth, was awarded for the Royal Navy as part of the uh, 1931 to 1932 naval program. But the order was suspended until the modified Leander class design was finished, and the ship was laid down, as I said before, in or on June 26, 1933, um, and then she served as the flagship of the Commander in Chief Africa Six Cruiser Squadron which was Vice Admiral Sir Francis Tottenham from 1936 to 1938. And in early 1939, she was refitted, and her 4 Mark 5 4-inch guns were replaced by the four twin-gun mounts of the Q, uh 4-inch Mark 16 dual-purpose gun. Some of you uh, World War II buffs will know that that is the main gun that, or, like, the... F- Crowd favorite gun of the Royal Navy and the British Commonwealth in World War II, it served as many of the main guns on a lot of their destroyer classes. It was dual purpose. It was well, um, like well documented on how to use the gun. Repairs were well documented, so it was just a well used and well loved gun throughout the war. Um, so they were uh, HMS Amphion was sold to the Royal Australian Navy. And, as I said before, commissioned on the 29th of June 1939, renamed HMAS Perth on July 10th of the same year. And what I kind of find funny, personally, is that when the Royal Australian Navy bought HMAS Perth, uh, they were like, okay, so are you going to, like, you know, sail her down here so we can, you know take take command of her and the british royal navy's like oh no we're not gonna sail her down here you have to sail your guys all the way to britain to go take command of it and then sail it all the way back down to australia so um that's well that's how events transpired and aboard the or the ss autolysis the enlisted men had to sleep or live and sleep in the ship's livestock holds so with the pigs and the cows while they were en route to pick up the HMAS Perth from the British. So I kind of find that funny. You're sleeping with the pigs en route to pick up what it was then a pretty advanced warship. So that's kind of funny. Another interesting thing was that when um, they were en route to Australia, they stopped at the 1939 New York's World's Fair. And while in New York City, they uh, represented Australia and a minor mutiny actually broke out. So the cause was kind of stupid, but uh, there were orders that the sailors ashore for shore leave uh, would have to return to the ship at 1,800, so 6 p.m., and change from white uniforms to blue uniforms. And uh, because the overall treatment of the enlisted men by the officers apparently wasn't super great on the trip ashore, they were, or on the trip from England to the United States was not super great, so these uh, sailors were kind of getting tired of their officers. And then what happened is that uh, the sailors basically refused, and uh, 60 sailors gathered on the ship's forecastle and were confronted by officers that had handguns. So immediately the sailors were kind of alarmed, and so were the people wharf-side, because you could see this on the wharf going on. So uh, the NYPD was ordered out to the wharf to defuse the situation, and they came in with all sorts of weapons and, like, uh, yeah... Basically, they came with rifles and everything like that, ready to have like a full-on gunfight with a foreign nation, essentially. So this could have um, this could have acted or had very large consequences for the world. Um, but what happened is the warship's commanding officer, Captain Harold Farncombe, uh, approached the sailors and informed that, them that if they did not follow orders to disperse, he would treat their actions as a mutiny. And he basically said that if you wanted to go ashore in your blue uniform, you just had to ask permission and then you'd go. So that's what happened. And then there was no shots fired, no one was injured, and no hard feelings. Maybe a few hard feelings, but not many. Okay, so, uh, while it's still en route to Australia after the World's Fair, uh, the Perth was steaming off of the coast of Venezuela when World War II began. Would you imagine that, just steaming on a gradual day? It's like, oh yes, by the way, our country's at war with, like, half the rest of the world, so, yeah, that's the thing. Um... And so she was only a, or she was the only British uh, Commonwealth warship in the Caribbean and Western Atl- Atlantic. So the cruiser began searching the region for German, German shipping and escorting convoys. And the Perth did not leave the area until March 1940. So you're still halfway across the globe from home. But she did manage to reach Australian waters by uh, March 31st of 1940, and she was refitted until April 29th at Garden Island Naval Base in Sydney, um, where she had her catapult finally installed uh, with a Seagull or Supermarine Seagull 5, which later transitioned to the super legendary Supermarine Walrus. And she was assigned to convoy, escort duty, and patrols along Australian coasts, uh, in May, and then in June, she was assumed, or, uh, the Rear Admiral John Crace hoisted his flag above the cruiser, and now the cruiser was the flagship of the British-Australian squadron, and so, essentially, she remained in that role until November of 1940, when she was sent to the Mediterranean to relieve her sister ship, the HMAS Sydney. Yes, that's also a approved Leander-class ship. Um... She escorted a troop convoy on her way from Australia to the Red Sea and arrived in Alexandria, Egypt on Christmas Eve uh, after a short spell of convoy escort duty. Later, she was assigned the 7th Cruiser Squadron of the Mediterranean Fleet. And this is kind of where stuff starts to get interesting because she did spend a lot of time in the Mediterranean. She participated in more convoys as part of Operation Excess in uh, early January 1941. Um, And while docked in Grand Harbor of Malta, and by the way, these uh, convoys were between Malta and Alexandria, Egypt. um, While she was docked in the Grand Harbor, she was damaged by a near-miss bomb that temporarily knocked out power and caused some flooding. And during the bombing, her crew helped out put a fire on the ammunition ship, or SSX, Essex, not SSX excess but ss essex like the aircraft carrier essex wow i cannot speak geez all right um and then she rendered some assistance to the damaged aircraft carrier hms illustrious and then uh, they left that evening reached alexandria on the 18th um, which was two days later and uh, she was escorted to a dockyard for temporary repairs and then she uh, rendezvoused with the illustrious on the 22nd of January, and then escorted her to Alexandria, um, and then uh, went to Greece to patrol for a little bit, and then went back to Alexandria for more permanent repairs. And on the way to Alexandria for those permanent repairs, she encountered a sandstorm, which is normally not a big deal, because remember, this this is uh, an age where there's not really sophisticated technology. In fact, the uh, HMAS Perth only had... Um, like a fixed array, array radar, so it was really simple radar. It's more like a radio antenna. But anyways, so the ship was really unaffected by it, but um, the Prime Minister was of Australia was coming to inspect the ship, and thus overnight the ship had to be completely washed down and cleaned of any evidence of sand, because, you know, they don't like the high brass to look at a dirty ship, even though they're, you know, dirty all the time. Anyways, uh, so... HMAS Perth entered Floating Dry Dock on the 9th of February, 1941, and was to remain there for 10 days to have her catapult removed, which had only been there for like <laughs> like less than a year, and then during this time, uh, her catapult was, or, was replaced by a pair of Italian, captured Italian, 20mm Brenda AA guns, so I find that kind of funny. Um, captured a gun, then just slap it on your ship, and like, hey, it looks pretty good. Uh, In addition, a non-rotating type 286 radar, uh, search radar was installed. So, yes, I was incorrect before. The Perth did not have radar until after the sandstorm in which the Prime Minister was going to inspect the ship. Um, Yeah, so just basically more escort duty for reinforcements for Operation Abstination. Abstination? Basically, when um, they were going to invade an Italian island, it supported it by just escorting uh, reinforcements, yep, escorting duty, more escorting duty, escorting duty, and more escorting duty. And beginning on the 7th of March, 1941, Perth supported the Allied reinforcement of Greece by transporting sold- soldiers from Alexandria to Piraeus or whatever, uh, patrol and patrolling the water between Greece and Crete. Um, in the 17th to 24th of March, she escorted another convoy, t- uh, to Malta. She played a very minor role in the Battle of Cape Matapan on the 26th to 29th of March, as her squadron spotted the Italian fleet as a, uh, and pursued them as they retreated towards the main body of the British fleet. Uh, she was undamaged during the battle and resumed her previous duties. Uh, received some pom-pom AA guns, uh, the two-pounder, are, uh, g- 24 or two pounder 40 millimeter 1.6 inch uh mark 8 pom-pom AA guns were installed on the catapult base which you know just seems to be a wheel of fortune as to what guns are going to get today um escorting more convoys to Malta uh evacuated Allied troops from Greece when the Germans decided to take it over and the Italians decided to take it over um and then yes uh loaded some refugees at night to minimize the ability of Axis forces to interfere with them. Always a good idea. Turn your lights off and just move at night. You don't have to, you know, (laughs) deal with the Germans, apparently. Uh, While patrolling around the, uh, Strait between Malta and Alexandria, she spotted a small German invasion convoy escorted by the Italian torpedo boat Sagittario um, on the morning of the 22nd of May. Um, and then, uh, she sank a straggler from another convoy before the main convoy was spotted, and then the torpedo boat had been trying to collect stragglers. and Her commander ordered his convoy to disperse, uh, while he laid a smoke screen and engaged the Allied ships with little effect. Um, es- essentially, his diversion and the lack of visibility caused by the smoke screen, coupled with repeated aerial attacks that peppered the ships of shrapnel, allowed the convoy to escape only with the loss of two ships. Um, and the Perth essentially re- just returned to Ale- Alexandria, spent a few days under repair from, with, uh, minor battle damage. Um, and I guess that really just shows you the point, or the importance of air cover, because that convoy had air cover, the Perth didn't have air cover, and so the convoy, which would have normally, on, I guess, on even terms, easily been sunk by the Perth, no questions asked, was able to get away, and the Perth had to retreat. So, you know, that just kind of shows you how important, you know, Air cover is also good strategy, props to the commander of the torpedo boat because he laid a smoke screen was able to confuse the Allied ships and uh, was able to get away. I found that kind of interesting. Uh, a simple smoke screen totally obscured the uh, you know course of a battle. The last major thing that Perth did in the um, Mediterranean was uh, evacuate uh, troops from spokannia or Spifcania, or something, evacuate from region of Crete, because, you know, we were getting our butts kicked on Crete. So, um, essentially, the Perth was ferrying these uh, troops back and was struck by a German bomb that uh, hit her forward boiler room shortly uh, after 10 a.m. with four of her sailors and nine of the 1,188 embarked soldiers dying. That's crazy how many soldiers they were able to fit on there. It uh, bent the starboard inner propeller shaft and badly damaged the galley, the high fire angle control computer, and the admiralty fire control table for the six-inch guns and started many leaks. So that was kind of a big deal, Uh, returned to Alexandria for repair, and uh, was under repair for a month because of uh, the damage that was caused. Uh, she returned to Australia for permanent repairs and, um, yeah in addition to this um, she received uh, four 20mm AA guns uh, and the Type 286 radar was removed for some strange reason um, and Captain Hector Waller assumed command on the 24th of October 1941 Hector Waller is the commander who would go down with HMAS berth he was an absolute mad lad um, yeah, so essentially the refit was completed at Cactus Island Dockyards after a uh, delay caused by fire that melted the electrical cables leading to the director control tower on the roof of the bridge. Um, yeah, so that's kind of a major delay. <laughs> that's a bit of an issue. Good thing it didn't turn out like the Bohemian Richard, um, or Bohemian Rochard, or wh- however you want to pronounce the name of the uh, U.S. Navy ship that burned in, um was it San Diego Harbor because some sailor decided he wanted to leave early or something like that. Um, the HMAS Perth, after the refits complete was completed, the HMAS Perth and the HMAS Canberra uh, steamed on the 12th of December from Sydney, Sydney to Brisbane, Australia, and they met with the light cruiser NZS Achilles, which is the, another Leander-class cruiser, one of the original ones, and... Um, and uh, was under the New Zealanders' control. um, And they formed up a heavy escort for the Pensacola convoy. Um, And essentially, uh, that convoy was uh, centered around the USS Pensacola, as its name suggests, and then just, you know, was escorting convoys throughout 1942. And, yeah, basically just sat around escorting convoys in the Anzac area, um, until the Battle of the Java Sea commenced, and yeah, so the Battle of the Java Sea is detailed in my previous episode. So I'll go over it. I'll spend thirty seconds going over it, but I really do recommend going out to check or going to check out my previous episode, which is all about Abdicom and uh, the you know, failures of ABDICOM and why ABDICOM shouldn't have existed, but why it also provided large amounts of, uh, I guess, data for the U.S. and, well, all the constituents of Abda to, you know, improve their communication skills and how they were going about working together in, um, you know, in World War II. And arguably without ABDICOM, we may not have as had as a successful of a Pacific campaign. You know, this This early failure was a bit of a, you know, a trial and error thing that they did. And it was very tragic. Essentially what happened is not enough Allied ships in Indonesia to defend it from the Japanese. The Japanese realized this, capitalized this, and just pushed straight through the, the, um, the uh, British, American, Dutch, and Australian fleet. And just slapped them all the way back to their uh, respective countries. And uh, took... Java, or well, took the whole um, Indonesian archipelago without much resistance, and the Indonesian archipelago would maintain, would stay under Japanese control for like basically the rest of the war, and would then declare independence from the Dutch Republic, and would have to be taken back by force before eventually being let go after pressure from the United States and the Dutch to let it go. Um, yeah, so essentially what they had to defend against most of the Japanese Navy was, um, uh, the British heavy cruiser Exeter, uh, H- and then the destroyer is HMS Jupiter, Electra, and Encounter, um, and the Dutch ships H N L M S and LMS De Reuter and H N L M S LMS Java, the, uh, heavy cruiser USS Houston, uh, three light cruiser, or, no, um, and a bunch of different, um, elderly American destroyers, so you got the four pipers, um, and then five modern destroyers, which were the three British that I had mentioned, and two Dutch, which I cannot pronounce their names, so I will not try to pronounce their names and disappoint the Dutch people. So yeah, basically, Battle of Jaffa Sea goes terribly. Most of it gets, des- most of the fleet gets destroyed. The ones that are able to limp away are the Exeter. Uh, I believe all the... Exeter, I think the encounter makes it out, too. Um yeah I think I think the encounter makes no nope. um Jupiter is sunk there I'm pretty sure um which one makes it out I think Jupiter might make it out but um, don't quote me on that um the and the uh all the Dutch stuff gets sunk basically except for one destroyer um and the uh, American destroyers uh flee. Mostly and the US Houston flees although all of them are damaged and essentially they're just slowly hunted down and picked off by the Japanese uh, this happens for the Perth and the Houston in the Battle of the Sunda Strait and Both of them are sunk. It's uh, basically I read a book on this. It's called the uh, Ship of Ghosts. It centers on the USS Houston But a lot on the of it is about the HMAS Perth because of how closely those two ships work together um, highly recommend it. James D. Hornfisher's man who wrote it. It's amazing. It's like watching a movie. And the scene of all these ships being sunk and picked off is kind of like the scene from Revenge of the Sith when all the Jedi are being killed by the Sith or by the clones, I should say. And you know the clones are at that point controlled by the Sith. This particular Darth Sidious. Anyways, um, yeah. So that is the story of HMA birth, sunk in the Sunda Battle Sunda Strait uh with H or with USS Houston because of a lack of reconnaissance they went down a strait that they thought was clear of um uh japanese ships but actually had a full invasion force of japanese uh ships in there and that ended about as well as you thought it would um so yeah uh, that is it for HMAS Perth and next episode will be about its um you know gameplay in world of warships which is very enjoyable i highly recommend h m perth although she's not for everyone anyways hope you enjoyed this episode Um, please feel free to email me questions comments concerns suggestions for the not the next episode but the episode after that hopefully we'll have an episode uh in the next two weeks but uh if not i do apologize life is getting busy anyways uh hope you enjoyed this episode and until next time captains